reduce the pressure and it's not quite so bad. <laughs> All right, this is week two in our series called Blessed, and as we look at some of the unique ways God has blessed us, perhaps ways that we had not seen as blessing before. Last week, we looked at blessed with a need, and the need was relationships. Well, we need a relationship with God, and we need relationships with others. One of the reasons for being part of a local church is that we're a group of people doing life together with Jesus. We're growing together, and, and we will struggle uh, sometimes with how things are, and, how, and we're different people, and it's important to have that individuality, but still, we need to come together. Dr. Henry Cloud is a clinical psychologist and leadership expert uh, who's written a number of books that have been helpful in the business world, but especially in the context of local churches. So as a staff this week, we watched one of his videos about relationships, because that's what we talked about last Sunday, relationships, uh, uh, community, really. It was on community. And here is what impressed me. Dr. Cloud said, spiritual growth is about relationship. The basic difference between our faith and every other faith is that this is not a religion. This is a relationship. A relationship that is based on trust. It's based on faith. We put our faith and trust into another person, God, and each other. Now, religion says that you can grow spiritually by doing these things. You can grow spiritually by keeping the law. You can grow spiritually by keeping these rules. You can grow spiritually by learning these secret things. Now, nothing can be further from the truth because the Bible says that spiritual growth happens when we are reconciled into a relationship with God and a relationship with others. We are a body, and relationships are an integral part of a healthy local church. We are blessed with a need, a need for relationship with God and a need for relationship with each other. Now, today we're going to continue on with another of these blessings that God has given us. God has blessed each one of us with a desire to worship. I'm going to talk about worship this morning. Now, generally, all humans have this desire to worship, to worship something. From earliest times and throughout the centuries, history records for us the desire to worship something. In my early teens, I remember a black-and-white movie about a discovered ape man. And there's no way I could find it on the... I have no idea what it was. Just I remember distinctly this ending scene. The struggle in the movie was to determine if this was an animal or a human. Can we take it apart or do we have to let it live? Something that always stuck with me was that last scene after the scientists had killed the subject and dissected it, someone discovered that this prehistoric group had built a fire and worshipped something. In the writer's mind of that scene, worship defined it as human. God has blessed us with a desire to worship. And the question we want to start off with this morning is, what is the one thing that God desires that only you can give? What's the one thing that God desires that only you can give? One thing that God wants from you that you can give or withhold freely. 
The answer, of course, is our worship, our heart's affection, our praise. God desires your worship, but it's something that only you can give to him. Henry Ward Beecher was a famous American pastor in the late 1800s. He was widely sought after as a speaker. The whole family were actually well-known preachers, speakers, and writers. You may have heard of the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was written by Henry's sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe. People crowded into Plymouth Congregational Church in Brooklyn, New York, every Sunday to hear Henry preach. One Sunday, however, Henry couldn't be in the pulpit, so he got his brother to substitute for him. A large audience had already gathered and assembled to hear Henry Beecher. But when the substitute pastor stepped into the pulpit, several disappointed listeners began moving toward the exits. And that's when the minister stood and he said loudly, All who have come here today to worship Henry Ward Beecher may now withdraw from the church. All who have come to worship God, keep your seats. Worshiping God. It's an important topic. It's one to get people, it's one thing to get people to believe in God. But once they accept that there is a God and he's worthy to be worshipped, it raises all kinds of questions about what is worship and why is worship so important. So first, a couple of things to define this blessing. Number one, there is a war for your worship. There is a literal war being waged in the cosmos in the universe for your worship. In Isaiah, we see a picture of where this war began. It started before our earth was created. Scripture says that there was an angel that was more beautiful than any other angel. His name was Lucifer. Somewhere along the way, his desire and his motive turned darkly inward. He began to desire what only God was worthy of receiving. He said, I want to be worshipped. And Isaiah says this of Lucifer. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. It is I will versus thy will. We see a difference between Lucifer. I will make myself like the most high. And Jesus, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, God cast Lucifer out of heaven with a third of the angels. We know him today as our spiritual enemy, Satan. And at that moment in time, the war for your worship began. Satan was cast down, but he is still fighting for our worship. Worship me like you worship God. And we see it carried out further in the New Testament where Satan's challenge to Jesus. In Matthew 4, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. If Satan had a mission statement, it would be to get everyone to worship him. Now, most people will go, whoa, I'm not going to worship Satan. That's for some strange people down in San Francisco. Well, the devil knows that he probably can't get us to worship him directly. What if he could get us to worship anything other than? than God. Worship anything but God. You see, we are all worshipers, all of us. Human beings worship. That is basic human nature. 
We worship our image. We worship our kids. Some of us worship our jobs. We may even worship a TV program. I just can't miss that. We worship sports. Got to see that game. Got to play that game. Uh, We worship work, business, making money, being successful. Everyone is a worshiper. We will worship something. We will worship God or we will worship something else. What do you value most? Where do you give your time, your heart, your affection, money spent? Where do you give it? We are a worshiping people, and those will be indicators of what you're worshiping. We are worshiping people because we were, number two, we were created to worship. Worship in English comes from the world, words worth-ship. Worship is giving worth or value to something above all else. So what is worth it? Exodus 2 says, You shall have no other gods before me. God is speaking to Moses. You shall not make yourself, for yourself idols. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, it doesn't seem strange when God says, I'm a jealous God. Jealousy is not an acceptable character trait for humans. We try to get our kids not to be jealous. However, if you think of our relationship with God as described as a marriage relationship, in the Old Testament, Israel is described as a bride of God. In the New Testament, the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. Love is reserved for the spouse, not other love interests. We are all worshiping something all the time. There is a war for our worship. God, many things, the philosophies of the world around us, many of these things are okay in and of themselves, but often they kind of sneak in right above God and we become worshipers of those things, the other gods, success, security, beauty, brains, bucks, The first commandment recognizes this as it states, you shall have no other gods before me. You ever seen a kid with a kinder surprise? We used to have a a lady in the church would always bring Matthew a kinder surprise every Sunday and it was like crack it open and find out what that surprise was. I I saw a cartoon about someone with an avocado and the uh, little caption was, an avocado, another wooden ball, wouldn't it kill him to put in different toy in there? If you are older, you will remember Cracker Jacks. How many remember Cracker Jacks? Yeah. Did you like the Cracker Jacks? Eh. What were you after? You'd rip the bottom out, find out what the prize was. And my brother always got a better prize than me. (laughs) I want that. I see you obsessing over that promotion. I really want that. The attention, that time, the devotion, that affection that you're giving back thing. I crave it. God reminds us, I want you, I want what you are giving everywhere else. Should be reserved for God. You were created to worship. The very nature of our being is to worship. It's so easy for us to give our devotion to anything because it's in our original design to worship something. When people were around Jesus, the creator of all things, they saw things they'd never seen before. Because they were around Jesus and they saw what he was doing, 
Worship was their only reasonable response. And in Luke 19, on the, on the triumphal entry, he's coming into Jerusalem. The people are yelling and screaming and shouting in praise. They're waving their palm branches that first Palm Sunday. Jesus enters on a donkey and everyone's overjoyed that the Messiah has arrived. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. People see him, they see all these ridiculous miracles, and the only thing they could do was cry out in worship. But some of the Pharisees, the religious folks, they were mad. Make them shut up. But Jesus says, I tell you this, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. One way or another, God will be worshipped. It'll either be a natural way or an unnatural will happen. We were created to worship worship God with everything in us. I like this illustration of how God interacts in our lives. Sometimes we often think of a ladder, you know, God's at the top, and what's our priority? God's up here, and family, or spouse, and we kind of work it way down. But I think it's better for us to think of it, God is in the center of the wheel in all of our life, all the compartments, all the things are around, but God interacts in everything, not just on Sunday when we come to a worship experience, Everything we do, every sport we're involved in, every job that we do, every hug that we give our kids, God is part of that. Worship doesn't just happen on Sundays. It should be a part of every aspect of our life. So we ask our question, what's your thing that gets in the way of God's priority? Honestly, what is it that you allow to take priority over God? You spend more time thinking about it. You spend more money on it. You give it your heart, your whole life. It it consumes you. If there is a war for your worship, who is winning? Is it God or is it everything else? Worship is so important because there is a war being waged for it. What do you worship? What do you value most? And we can ask the question, you know, man, what's my part in this worship deal like you're talking about worship but what is worship how do we do worship we call this a worship experience coming to church we worship like what is it we call it worship so we come into a room that looks a bit like a theater so we automatically think of performance theater and the first key part is audience because you're the audience you have power You have the gift of criticism. You can be a consumer to appreciate or critique the performers. The second key part is the performers, the band, the actors, the presenters. They will make you laugh or cry or fear. They may inspire you. They may try to keep your attention and entertain you. And then there's the director who stands in the back overseeing it all, giving the cues, putting it all together, hopefully the Holy Spirit. God. Here's the question. Is that how you see worship? How many think that's worship? Yeah, it's a trick question. (laughs) But it is how we kind of think of worship. And as as people who put together a worship experience, sometimes we're thinking of it like that. What you really need to do is shake that off. Like, Like throw that away. That is not what we're talking about when we talk about worship. Don't think of yourself as the audience. View yourself as part of the performing cast. 
We, the pastor, the band, the people, we are the cast, all of us. We are the worshipers who worship an audience of one. God is the audience. So how does that help define my life? Well, perhaps I can't be late to a worship service because I'm not the audience. I'm part of the cast. I am the worshiper, so I will come with a different attitude. I won't come here to receive something from God, to be entertained by the band, to critique uh, they did it good or bad. The chances are that I will enjoy something. I will receive something. The cast always gets something out of a performance. And we do gear the sermons and the aspect of the service to appeal to an audience, but I'm not coming here to hear from God, although I will. I come not to receive, but to give. To give him my heart. To give him my worship. We are simply doing what has been done for centuries. When Jesus rose from the grave, his followers were a small group, about 120 people in Jerusalem. So on the first day of the week, they gathered together wherever they could. And they did it for the purpose of celebrating, giving thanks, giving thanks, honoring and worshiping all that God had done since they last met. That's why we come. That's why we gather. God has called us to come together in the assembly to make his praise known among his people. There is a war for our worship because we were created to worship. I want to recognize, though, that all of us are at different places in this whole journey with Jesus. Gary Thomas wrote a book a number of years ago that helped me understand a bit more about worship. It's called Sacred Pathways. And he describes nine ways to connect with God. Each of us will worship in different ways. Just like we don't use one medicine to treat every illness, it is the same in the spiritual world. Christians who desire to be fed spiritually cannot all be given the same generic, all-inclusive method. The way we relate to God, how we draw near to Him. There's not just one pathway. Now, Gary Thomas has categorized nine different ways. It's like uh, if you've read uh, love languages. You know, we, we speak in different love languages. Certain things come in our relationships with our spouse and our children, the love languages. It's much the same way with worship. Now, there are nine defined. I'm going to go over them with you. We will all use most of them, but we will be, find ourselves predominant in one or two. We will appreciate one over the others, and it doesn't mean the others are not valid, and they will also shift as we age or as circumstances change. But here, here are the nine. Some of you, you, I'd almost want you to stand up and say, yay, that's mine. Um, but I know you're not number five, so that's okay. Number one are naturalists. I have met a number of these people. They are naturalists. They love God out of doors. They would much rather walk through the woods on the mountain, pray beside a river, to read the Bible outside. I remember a First Nations fellow, J.P., uh, he said his great-grandfather was a shaman in the, in the coastal tribes, and most of their religion was wiped out as a white man came in, but he says he remembers his mom talking about his great-grandfather, 
he would find a place that was his sacred place, and he would go there to worship. It was a naturalist, loving God out of doors, finding a place, and just being outdoors and just appreciating God in the wind and the rain and the sun and whatever it is, I, I just outdoors. Um, they love to sing things like, All creatures of our God and King, how great thou art. St. Francis of Assisi, Jonathan Edwards, Annie Dillard are a name of a few in that area. Number two, sensates. They love God with the senses. They are drawn to liturgy, to the majestic, to the grand, incense, architecture, classical music, formal language, sights, sounds, smells, just invigorate them in worship. They would sing songs like, now, most of my songs here are old. I'm sorry, I don't have new songs to have because, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm an old man. Uh, Refiner's Fire, how beautiful. Handel, uh, even Philip Keller, uh, Shepherd looks at 23rd Psalm, would classify them as sensates. Number three are traditionalists. They love God through ritual and symbol, structures, sacraments, sacrifice, the disciplined life of faith. They can be a bit in the legalists. They like the rules, and the Pharisees aren't that bad to them. Regular attendance, tithing, keeping the Sabbath. They would sing immortal, invisible, God-only wise, all glory, laud, and honor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, attend an Anglican or a Lutheran service, and you will get a bit of a feel of the traditionalists who love God through ritual and symbol. Number four, the ascetics. They love God in the solitude and simplicity. They like to be left alone in prayer and silence and simplicity. No liturgy, no trappings of religion. They're very introspective. They would sing songs like, Be still and know that I am God, holy and anointed one. When I look into your holiness, you are my all in all. John the Baptist would have been in this category. Brother Lawrence, Michael Card are some of the more modern writers. Number five is one that I never thought of. The activist. They love God through confrontation. Jesus cleansing the temple. Love that story. Standing against evil, calling sinners to repentance. There's a church is a place to recharge their batteries so they can back, go back into the world to wage, wage war against injustice. The slave trade. Uh, children dying of hunger. They would sing songs like Faithful Men. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Take my life and let me be. Francis Schaeffer, William Wilberforce, Charles Colson, Martin Luther King, the activist, standing up and saying, do it this way. Difficulty is they often come into the church and says, everybody should do it. And we kind of go, ah, that's not who I am. But their charge, their worship has to have some focus in that area. Similarly, number six, the caregivers love God by loving others. They serve God by serving others. They often claim to see Christ in the poor and the needy. And their faith is built up by interacting with other people, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, caring for the diseased, bringing a refugee in and being involved in helping them get set up. Uh, songs might be, he gives us more grace, meekness and majesty, the servant king, the servant song. Uh, the Good Samaritan would be one there. Mother Teresa, George Mueller uh, would be people 
who have followed that area. Number seven, enthusiastics. They love God with mystery and celebration. They are cheerleaders for God in the Christian life. Let them clap their hands, shout amen, dance in their excitement. They don't want to just know concepts. They want to experience them, to feel them, to be moved by them. Hallelujah! One, two, three, four. Okay, we've got a few of them. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. We bring the sacrifice of praise. The Lord reigns. Lord, I lift your name on high. Majesty. Uh, King David would probably be in there. Graham Kendrick, Jack Hayford, and Kimmel Anderson would be some of the enthusiastics. Number eight is the contemplatives. Loving God through adoration. Contemplatives refer to God as their lover. The images of a loving father, a bridegroom, predominate their view of God. Focus is not necessarily on serving God, doing His will, or accomplishing great things in His name, or even obeying God. These Christians seek to love God with the purest, deepest, and brightest love imaginable. They would focus on meditation, centering prayer. If you think of that story of Mary and Martha and Bethany, Mary would be a contemplative, whereas Martha would have been a serving. These people would sing songs, Open the eyes of my heart, faithful one. Here I am to worship. I love you, Lord. I lift my voice. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul. Uh, people in that area, James Houston, Thomas Merton, Augustine. Number nine. Of course, this is the most important one. <laughs> the intellectuals. Loving God with the mind. Uh, I discovered, here's where I sit. This is me. Uh, they're likely to be studying. They like doctrines like Calvinism, infant baptism, ordination of women, predestination. They would, they would fight and work through these things and try to understand the theology. These Christians live in a world of concepts. Faith is something to be understood as much as experienced. So they would sing, holy, 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 how firm a foundation. I will delight in the law of the Lord. Teach me your way. And uh, here are my heroes, John Calvin, J.I. Packer, R.C. Spruill, C.S. Lewis, Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, they would fall under intellectuals. Now I'll show you the whole list again. You're going to go, okay, where am I? You will probably find two or three that you kind of go, yeah, yeah, man, no, I really want to know. Typically, in the previous hundred years, we have separated on denominational lines for these. What has happened over the last, as I've been in ministry, the last 40 years, um, I have found as a uh, working through services, we have to pay much more attention that we're hitting four or five of those every Sunday. We can't just be the intellectual. Sing a few hymns and now let's have an hour of preaching. That doesn't go anymore. Well, it does for a few, but not for many. How do you worship? What is your spiritual temperament, your sacred pathway? This then becomes a challenge for church staff who put together worship events. How to help people encounter God. How to assist people to worship the great triune God. Now, we're going to do it in a variety of ways and explains why sometimes you don't feel like you've worshipped. I, I, I just didn't feel like I worshipped today. It's not about entertainment. That can be the trap. That's one of the difficulties when we, we come in a performance way. 
if you went to a First Nations church, sometimes their church is built along the style of their meetings where everybody just gathers in a big circle and someone will stand and it will, it will go along a different style. And you'll go to that going, I didn't worship. No, you were in a different style. You're a different pathway. Different people will worship in different ways. We lift our hands like children to dad. That's my grandson, Sean, 15 years ago. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> our worship style is going to dictate your body response. You might lift your hands. You might fall down. You might sit in rest. You might want to be standing and singing. You might want to be kneeling and praying. You might want to be teaching and preaching. We transition from being an audience that critiques to people who engage in worship to the audience of one. God is the audience, and we come to worship him. Worship is a response to who God is and what he has done. In Hebrews it says, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe speechless and awe. How do I respond to his supernatural goodness? My only responsible or reasonable response is worship. In view of who God is and what he has done, I bring an offering, and I am the offering. In Romans, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In view of who he is and what he's done, just think about it. Look at your life. Look at the things that you've done. Look at the things that you believe the Bible says about God's response to what you have done. In view of God's mercy, it's all because of Jesus. Jesus dying the most cruel death that ever happened. And yet your name and my name were on his mind as he died. There is nothing we have done to deserve worshiping him. Love the Lord God with everything you have, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And in view of who he is and what he has done, we bring him an offering. And we are that offering. It's deeper than our songs. It's louder than our music. It's more than our words. It is surrender to him. It's all because of Jesus that we have life that goes on into eternity. I become a living sacrifice. I am the offering. And I will worship him in a way that God has designed me to do. And I will search out a place that allows me to do that. And we want to be a place that allows people in many different ways to encounter God, to worship him, to be the offering that we need to be. Just before Fernando comes to lead us in pastoral prayer, here's a video that encapsulates what we've been talking about. Worship. Everybody worships. 
Everyone, everywhere, worships something. Whatever captivates the heart's affections, the mind's attention, and the soul's ambition essentially has our worship. We worship everything from pop icons to our jobs to our favorite sports team. While the object and method of worship vary, the act of worship does not. Oftentimes, our worship is focused on ourselves. The pursuit of fame, wealth, and personal satisfaction becomes the focus of our wants and desires. But no matter how much we worship these things, they can never satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. God has uniquely designed us with meaning and purpose. He's divinely created us in his own image. When we worship the created and not the creator, we are left unfulfilled and unsatisfied. We deny God the worship that is rightfully his. When we step into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus, our relationship with God should become elevated above every other ambition, every other affection, and every other activity. It should change everything we do. It begins to change the words we say, the decisions we make, the way we view our circumstances and see the people around us. It changes our goals, desires, and pursuits. Instead of searching for meaning and purpose in our life, it becomes the meaning and purpose of our life. Worshiping God is not limited to singing a song on Sunday morning. It's a lifestyle lived out in reverence to God wherever he has placed you. There is no sacred and secular divide. Worship involves all of our lives, not just one part. Not just one part. That means we worship as we work, as we parent, as we go to school, as we gather around the table, as we suffer, as we compete, as we love, as we seek, as we create. All that we believe, think, say, and do should flow from our beating heart of worship. So what is worship? It's the outpouring of our lives, led by the Spirit and rooted in God's truth, devoting all we are and all we do to Him, our Creator. It's ascribing worthiness to the one who alone is worthy. Well, just keeping the same attitude of worship, would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, Father, thank you so much for who you are. And I have no idea why you desire worship from us who have been so faithless in our attitudes, in our lives. But we, we have filled our lives with being devoted for, to everything but you. Yet your word says that you are longing jealously for our affection. And I pray that you receive it right now from your children. We have been encouraged by your word this morning to love you, our God, our Savior, our King, and to show that love by worshiping you. We pray that our offering of worship will honor your name. We offer our lives to you as living sacrifices. Forgive us for making worship something